0: This is Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. Over this series, we examine the pressures facing families today and the practical steps that can be taken to better support our children and families over their life course journey. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. In this latest episode, I'm joined by Professor Lorraine Mazarol. Lorraine is a professorial research fellow at the University of Queensland School of Social Sciences and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. She was recently named amongst the world's most influential criminologists, which is quite a feat, and she is specific research interests in the area of experimental criminology and third-party and problem-oriented policing. We're going to find out a bit about that in a moment. Lorraine, welcome and it's great to have you here with us today.
1: Great and thank you very much Matt for having me on the program.
0: Look let's start off with uh, just getting you to reflect on how the world of criminology has really fitted into the work of the Life Course Centre.
1: Yes. So uh, criminology is a really important part of understanding life course issues. So we know from many years of research that there's a lot of intergenerational transmission of antisocial behaviours. So just the other day, I was talking to a police officer that was talking about that they've arrested the, the grandparent, the parent, and now the child. Wow. Uh, so these are really um, entrenched problems that as an as an experimental criminologist, we're looking at different ways to disrupt those pathways so that we can reduce that intergenerational transmission of disadvantage and, and criminal involvement.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the, the, the fact that the, there's even the possibility of doing that must be just so hugely important to the life course of young people.
1: Yes, well, that's right. And we know from research that for every dollar spent on early intervention with families that are under pressure, mm-hmm. with kids that are showing very early signs of antisocial behaviour, that we can reduce the spend in the criminal justice system, the back-end spend. And it's incredibly expensive to house people in correctional settings, for example. And we don't want that. We actually want to divert as many people out of the criminal justice system, particularly young people, because we know that that involvement in the criminal justice system actually has a criminogenic effect. We want to divert them out of the criminal justice system at an early age and have better outcomes for these kids. So these
0: are serious cost offsets that would be achieved by successful early intervention Absolutely.
1: prevention? Absolutely, and as a criminologist we want to see that early intervention and better outcomes for for children and families. Yeah.
0: So just zeroing in on some of the work that you've been doing uh, in the life course center, can you give us an example of the kind of work you've been involved in?
1: Sure. So the the big project that we've been involved in with the life course center is the Ability School Engagement Partnership Program. So this is a program that involves a partnership between the police and the schools, working with families, working with the children and the parents to better engage young people in school attendance. And we know that that better engagement in school attendance achieves less antisocial behaviour from the kids, less criminal involvement, and it also means that there's better life outcomes. So those kids that are engaged more in school have less long-term welfare dependencies.
0: So if you think about the prevention or reduction of truancy to establish a kind of a stable, predictable pattern of school attendance, I mean, you could go a number of different ways in trying to address that issue, and I'm curious about your thinking about why the police. Yes.
1: Well, we know from our study that 98% of the families that have kids that are skipping a lot of school are known to police. Now, that's a huge percentage. That is very Now, high. they're not necessarily... the. You know, the families are known to police. They can be known to police as victims. Mm -hmm. They can be... A a family member can be known to police as offending and it's a child that is in the environment, in the family environment where there's a a family member that has a drug problem, for example, or or there's domestic violence or they're known to police. So it's not necessarily that the young young child is engaged in antisocial behaviour, but their family environment is certainly engaged.
0: So I'm curious about the way in which police are finding out about these families. What, what's the route that yeah, comes so, to their attention?
1: So previously, before we started this program, the schools were dealing independently with these families. The police were dealing independently with these families, but there was all this crossover. Right. So it was a police initiated intervention that said, let's come together. Let's come together. We're dealing with the same families. We're seeing a lot of the same Mm -hmm. issues. So this was a partnership that what we did was we wrapped around some of the evidence that we knew about how partnerships work together. But probably most importantly in this program is we wrapped a family group conference into this partnership where the police and the schools engaged with these families in a procedurally just way.
0: Right, and they did it together? Together. And was it school-based or where was it done?
1: It was done at a location that was sympathetic to the family. So sometimes they had very negative experiences with the school. In those cases, we did it off-site, sometimes in libraries or in a neutral location where the families felt felt safe
0: and was it compulsory for the parents to attend
1: so it was all voluntary so the their business as usual is that the parents actually can be prosecuted Mm -hmm. for their child not attending school now a lot of the time the parents actually don't know what the ramifications are the legal ramifications are and a thousand dollar fine for some of these families is an enormous amount of money. So the, the, a lot of the time the families didn't know that the parents could be fined up to a thousand dollars for their children not attending school. But how do you communicate that to parents? So the business as usual is that they would get a letter or they would get pulled into the mm-hmm. to the principal's office and communicated these fines in a way that really didn't make a lot of sense.
0: Before we get on to what was achieved with the, the project I'm just curious about the kinds of skills that you felt the police needed to develop to do their side of the family conference well? Yeah sure
1: so a trained facilitator actually worked with the police officer to they had a script that they had to follow the mm-hmm. procedures justice language which is about conveying trustworthy motives it's about being neutral in decision making it's about giving voice and that's really important giving voice to the to the parents and to mm-hmm. the child interestingly we also did a lot of training with the teachers or the school representatives and in many ways this language of procedural justice engagement actually hasn't permeated a lot into the school context. So now we're doing a lot of training with the schools using this procedural justice dialogue.
0: Mm. And so when you think about a parent's journey going through this process, obviously uh, the authorities are concerned about their offspring and there's clearly something wrong going on here. But when they exit from it, what's your general sense of the, the kind of the mindset of the parent? Are they feeling shamed and humiliated or are they feeling empowered to do something different tomorrow?
1: Well, and of course, uh, they're they're feeling more empowered. Mm -hmm. And the whole intent of the family group conference is to not shame. Um, That's a really important part of it. I should say that some of these parents are really earnest about their child attending school and they've done so much to try to get their child to attend school And some of it is that conversation with the child to bring the child's voice into the dialogue and some very, very simple things, such as if the child's late to school because the parent's running late to get the child to school, that the child's not shamed coming into the classroom late and that there's some understanding from the schools about what the child's situation is. And sometimes the reverse is the the case, that the the child actually really wants to go to school, but the parents actually needs the child there to be looking after a younger sibling. So it's actually a lot of it is focused then on the parent and what the parent needs to change to facilitate that child coming to school. So the situations were quite different across the different families.
0: But fundamentally, it would still have to be very child-centric in the end, wouldn't it? Because this is for the well-being of the kids.
1: That's right. And so it's everyone doing their bit. So the action plans that came out of the family group conference, everyone had something to do. Mm -hmm. The school representative had something to do. The police representative had something to do, very concrete things. Mm -hmm. The the, uh, parent did and the child. Everyone had to work together to do their bit for the child to increase their school attendance.
0: And was there good acceptance by the school system of this way of approaching it?
1: the the schools were the schools have been really embracing and we're now scaling up this program with a 1.8 million dollar funding to scale it up to see how it works at scale across a much larger number of schools than what we did in the proof of concept trial
0: right is that in queensland or yeah
1: that's in queensland right
0: OK, so perhaps if you could just summarise the key findings
1: from the uh, the research. Yeah, sure. So the kids are more willing to go to school. They go to school more. So we've looked at both the self-reported as well as the school attendance. They have left self-reported antisocial behaviour, plus the families less involved in police, less contact with the families in the, the post-intervention period. The schools feel more empowered. The police believe that they're working better with the school. So the partnership, the perceptions of both the school and the police partnerships is that they're working together better as well.
0: So for those kids who have missed a significant amount of school and they've got learning and other difficulties that might make them vulnerable for ongoing behavioural, emotional or learning problems... Does this kind of program need to interact with other sources of support for that child or that family?
1: Yes, and so where there was a need identified by the lead facilitator to bring in another service provider, they could do that. I should emphasise that this isn't about wholesale change, structural change for the for the families. So if there's employment issues or there's mm-hmm. housing issues or there's long-term interventions needed those referrals were made available to the families but the uptake of it was really up to the families to actually do that so i wonder
0: if i wonder if you get a situation also where parents can only handle so much change at any one time and they could easily get overwhelmed with the possibilities of everything else that you might need to do and to have something that's very focused on something that's a valued outcome for them which is their kids going to school regularly is very important in its own right.
1: Yes, that's right. Just that. And so it's a real it's a real proximate kind of, of outcome for, for those families.
0: Okay, and the the hypothesis presumably is that as school attendance becomes more predictable and regular from a policing perspective and a criminal justice perspective, they'd be seen as much less at risk of being involved in other antisocial behaviours. That's so, right,
1: and the, the data really show that. So yeah. we both looked at a, official police contacts, street checks, calls for service, arrests, Incidents, as well as all the self-report from the child and the parents, so right. self-report about their their engagement in antisocial behaviour. Importantly, this was a longitudinal study as mm-hmm. well, which is quite rare in these kinds of policing. What length of follow-up did you have? So we looked at two years post-randomisation. Okay. Um, now that's. For in our world, mm-hmm. two years post-randomisation is, is quite a long-term follow-up when we would be looking at five years and then 10 years down the track if we can follow up with these, these families.
0: I suspect, though, if it's going to relapse and things are going to fall in a heap, it's going to happen relatively quickly. And if you've got something that's sticking at two years, there's a good chance that it's going to continue well, further, right. would you say?
1: Yes, that's right. And remember, these are kids at the point of increasing antisocial behaviour. You know, that's when the from a delinquency point of view, mm-hmm. we know that kids are escalating in terms of their delinquency 13, 14, 15 mm-hmm. years old. So most of the delinquency comes from what we've called adolescent limited delinquents. So these are kids that would age out of offending at about age 18 19 20 anyway so what we're trying to do is to stop them being snared in the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. and if we can get that early exit out of being snared we know that we can get some traction in terms of not getting involved in the criminal justice system for a much longer period of time
0: so what are the lessons learned here for policymakers and practitioners
1: so, for policymakers, we really do believe that the school-based policing program. There's ten million dollars a year, and 50 school-based police officers that are allocated into schools. We think that is that nationally, or that's just in Queensland. In, yeah. What we think is that that role for school-based police officers needs to change, so that there's this program that really brings an engagement with the families in this procedurally just way, where the the school-based police officers can work across a number of different schools with very high-risk kids, is going to be a more cost-effective way of deploying school-based police in schools.
0: Just turning to the role of parents for a moment, I mean, how important is their role in trying to either prevent or manage this problem with kids.
1: Look, I think that the parents play a really important role, but we also know that in this age group that we target, 13-14, a lot of their peers are really important in their life. The schools are having a lot of influence as well. So, we think that it's a real tripartite if you like between the family, schools and their peers.
0: And you can't have a situation working with parents where it's a sort of a blame and shame kind of model because parents will just, you know, minimise, deny, avoid, not take ownership. And uh, if if the experience has been too coercive. So I'm wondering from the perspective of lessons learned in the domain of messages to parents out there, if you could get one or two key ideas across to the parents who have kids who are having problems with regular school
1: attendance, what would your message be? So the message is really that this program can actually help for all the parties to understand what their roles and responsibilities actually are. And some very minor things can be done to help the parent get the children to school. And if I was to say the one big thing, Mm -hmm. it's giving the parents voice. It's actually giving the young person some voice in this family group, conference setting, getting The a kids shared, the voice or the parent the, the voice? The parents and the kids yeah, yeah. so that their voices are heard, that I'm having trouble in my family, I need help.
0: Do kids recognise themselves that they've got a problem with this?
1: The kids often recognise that they know that they've got a problem, yeah. but the support around them to to solve that problem is what's, what's important here and being heard. You know, I'm skipping school because I'm being bullied or I'm skipping school because my friends are, are skipping school and creating an environment for them where going to school is that there, there's some motivations for them to actually go go to school.
0: Look, with an evidence-based practice that has shown benefit and you start thinking about scaling and quality maintenance of, and ensuring proper fidelity of the interventions, are there any particular challenges you've identified in working with the police as a group and ensuring that high-quality delivery is uh, ensured in the future?
1: Well, interesting you should say that because the police are actually pretty when we have the leadership in policing involved in this program which we did then they respond very nicely to the training around procedural policing we've handpicked the the police obviously to to be involved i should say that some of the what we would call school legitimacy Mm -hmm. so how parents and children view the legitimacy of school authority That was actually where most of the work had to be done, Mm -hmm. is actually working with the school so that the way in which they communicate with some of these very difficult families is done with the language of procedural justice. So how the teachers actually convey their trustworthy motives that they really want to see the kids come to school. So building some of that expertise with how the the teachers are communicating with the families. Well,
0: generally teachers are not well trained to have difficult conversations with parents. They're dealing with at times parents who are pushy, demanding, entitled, or avoidant, and there are conversations that are actually quite difficult for teachers who are not trained to necessarily deal with that. How does a process? Which
1: is interesting that the police have actually in some ways had better training for dealing with very difficult a, people.
0: Right, because they're dealing with them a lot, whereas it's more exception-based for for teachers who are occasionally dealing with these kinds of things. And I'm just wondering whether you think a process of parallel preparation of teachers in the school to have difficult conversations around truancy is also part of what would make this work in a sustained way.
1: And I think it's also the role of that facilitator in the ASEP, the Ability School Engagement Partnership Program, was yeah. really important. So rather than it being the school representative having a one-on-one, converse, very difficult conversation with these families, how the facilitator was able to draw out from the school representative and the police representative and the parent and the child the, the needed conversation so that there could be some transformative behaviour so that the kids went to school.
0: It's interesting isn't it because we're talking about a response to a problem that has been identified as occurring because the kids are are being truant and, and they're not having regular school attendance and part of the challenge that I think around this is to think of could this have been prevented. If you think about the kind of skills that are needed from a parenting perspective for a successful transition to school with regular school attendance of of their kids and then you think about the reciprocal skills that teachers and schools need to induct children into the system and communicate well with parents about expectations and so on do you see any action at that transition to schools phase to potentially prevent some of these Attendance we know, issues.
1: We know that prevention is absolutely key. So, uh,
0: but is it a homeschool kind of communication linkage process there, or is there something else that you? Would well, I, like? I do
1: think that the you know teachers are very busy. Police are seeing this in an episodic way. So what we see is that there's no not the joining up early enough yeah. to bring the parties together to do that early, early intervention. So it's a systems issue really, mm-hmm. when you look at it, that the sharing information across the schools, across policing, across the different systems when these families are known across the different domains and how you bring those together at an early stage I think is, is important.
0: Just moving away from schooling and just thinking about this year, I mean, what a year. <laughs> COVID's descended. It's, it's affected the whole community. It's affected us as researchers, all of our teaching and, you know, the whole process, the whole community, really. And it's presumably impacted big time on the criminal justice field as well. What are your thoughts about this in terms of covid's impact.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of research that's looking at the impact of covid on on crime. And certainly the very early stages of lockdown had a very distinct impact in terms of reducing crime. And then some displacement, so certainly Mm -hmm. some increases in, early increases in domestic violence which had been predicted across the board and there's a lot of packages now that are funding interventions around domestic violence and also mental health problems. Families under pressure Mm -hmm. are all home under lockdown, you know, you can imagine the kinds of problems that that emerge in, in many of these families. So the longer term impacts are going to be very interesting. And we've got a project within the life course centre that we will be looking at the impacts of COVID across 125 cities in the world Mm -hmm. to see what sort of impacts that occur in the longer term there is a very good chance that there's going to be increasing pressure, financial pressure on families. And historically, we know that as there's been increasing financial pressures, then there's increasing crime opportunities. And certainly, there's some early indications of increasing property crime as a result of people being under financial pressure.
0: And people who have pre-existing challenges and vulnerabilities that partly stem from their living in poverty or living on the edge of poverty. COVID has not affected everyone
1: equally, has it? No, that's right. And certainly, you know, those people who were already under enormous amount of pressure, losing jobs, not having the support networks, you know, families interstate that they can't travel to and those sorts of things. All of that breaks down some of their networks and opportunities to move forward in a positive way. So I think that we're in for some, you know, everyone talks about the immediate effects of COVID which has been very difficult but I think that 2021 and 2022 for many of these families we're just going to be seeing some increasing problems emerging over the next few years.
0: Yeah it's interesting just to kind of reflect on what we're in for because there's a certain level of unknowability about this and just exactly how it unfolds could be somewhat different in different countries, different communities that have, I mean, for example, in the United States, their experience of COVID is very different from ours, isn't it?
1: Very, very different. This is the study that we've got within the Life Course Centre looking at 125 cities from all around the world. We've got Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, looking at the differential impacts of the different lockdown COVID restrictions. And what are some of the impacts in terms of employment impacts, mental health impacts, and crime? Impacts.
0: Well, I think you can almost guarantee, and this would be my prediction, that the impacts on children are going to be markedly influenced by parental capability and the impacts on the broader family system, and that if we don't support parents and families through this time, it's going to be much more difficult to try to minimise the adverse impacts on children. Do you agree with that?
1: Oh, look, I think that these kids that are having very different experiences in terms of learning online, for example, they don't have the social interactions, they don't have that opportunity to build those relationships with their teachers, with their other kids at school. The kids that are now transitioning out of high school into very uncertain employment opportunities different situations in terms of further education whether it's training or whether it's university and the kids that are graduating from university going into a very uncertain world so look I I think that the impacts on our young people are unprecedented and it's going to put the real spotlight on how families and and children can transition over the next few years in this very changed world
0: finally if you had a wish list and money were not an obstacle and you're serious about preventing crime and young people what would you advocate for
1: well early intervention really i being able to identify those at-risk kids that have conduct problems and clear problems early provide those wraparound services for those families, be able to divert out of the criminal justice system for sure. I know that we're about to start a randomised control trial next year with the Victorian police to increase the opportunities for diversion programs and then having sufficient community based services to actually be able to refer these people to Mm. and divert them into. And if you you know it's all very well and good to refer them, but if there's not the uptake, and there's actually not the services on the ground to provide that support.
0: Just one thought to reflect on. When you think about complex families, vulnerable families, where many different areas of their lives seem to be, from an outside view, are challenging for them, isn't it possible that you get program burden and burnout of families just with too many support needs that people are trying to attend to. And I wonder if you had considered the notion of this principle of the minimally sufficient you might need to do to just allow people to get on with their lives.
1: And navigating through that system to find that one mechanism that actually works for that family at that time. You know, that's very challenging. See,
0: elegant simplicity may carry the day, yeah. really, because complex problems don't always require complex solutions. They require good solutions that have got a good ecological fit.
1: And I, and at the right time yeah. and in a convenient way for the family.
0: In the hands of a skilled practitioner too or whoever's implementing the program. And
1: someone that they actually trust. You know, yeah. I think that trust in the in what they are working with that practitioner on, that they actually believe that this is actually helping. Yeah. Um, so that, that And there's a good rapport between the practitioner and that family so that they can transition through these difficult time periods.
0: Well, it's been terrific to talk to you today, Lorraine, and to get your insights on this sort of whole really important area of... The, the role of criminology in, in preventing serious problems. Great,
1: right. thank you very much, Matt.
0: That's it for our latest episode of Families Under Pressure. I'm Professor Matt Sanders, and I'll be interviewing more Life Course Centre investigators in coming episodes. I hope you can tune in then.